0: What kind of a show
1: are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting.
0: I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Tonight, tonight, the
1: world is full of light.
0: Back in 1961, West Side Story was the top-grossing movie at the box office and went on to win 10 Oscars, including Best Picture. To honor its 50th anniversary, Steven Spielberg went ahead and made a new one.
1: Spielberg's adaptation of the classic musical comes to
0: theaters on December 10th. This week, we've got a review. We've also got a review of director Sean Baker's latest, Red Rocket. That and more. Got a rocket in your pocket. Play it cool, Josh. Uh, Ahead, unfilmed spotting.
1: Easy action.
0: Welcome to Film Spotting. Back in 2015, Josh Sean Baker was a big discovery for both of us. His tangerine made our list of the best films of the year. It also won the coveted Film Spotting Golden Brick Award as our favorite overlooked film from a new or emerging director. He made good on that promise a couple of years later with the Florida Project that earned an Oscar nomination for Willem Dafoe. And now he's back with another one, Red Rocket, about an adult film star who returns to his hometown. Hijinks ensue. Yeah. Talk about a rocket in your pocket.
1: We'll get to that (laughs) first, though. Will we we get to that? (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty memorable scene. Let's get to Steven Spielberg's West Side Story first. Spielberg's film comes out, of course, just after the passing of the great musical theater composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim, who was 91. At just 27, Sondheim wrote the lyrics to the 1957 Broadway production of West Side Story. He would go on to become the greatest and most revered composer lyricist in the history of the art form. And Adam, when news of his death broke, it wasn't uncommon to see folks on social media comparing Sondheim to Shakespeare don't see that happening every day, but in this case, perhaps fitting. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the body of work from Sweeney Todd to company Sunday in the park with George, of course, a little night music as well. Eight Tonys one over his career. He also earned an Oscar back in 1991. I wasn't aware of this until just today for Dick Tracy. Sooner or later, I always get my man. We just talked about Tick, Tick, Boom here on the show where he plays a fairly major, minor character. Bradley Whitford portrays him, and it's one of those performances where if you've seen any actual video or been in Stephen Sondheim's presence, I was once back in London in 1995 when they revived A Little Night Music, and he did a Q&A. You know that Whitford is dead on with all of his mimicry, and it feels like an appropriate tribute to him. So definitely someone who's been on our minds here recently.
1: Yeah, my familiarity with his work really does just come from the film adaptations. So Into the Woods, Sweeney Todd, and of course, West Side Story. I I was telling you just last night, Adam, at the West Side Story screening that we were actually in New York City when the news broke for Thanksgiving, seeing our older daughter at school. And uh, the next day, I think it was, we were out for breakfast with her roommate. She was going to see a production of Company that afternoon, so. Obviously, you know, people in that realm, Just it just rocked them to hear this news. And that's what I've been discovering. As someone who, um, as I said, it, it was not as familiar with his musical theater work, it's been striking to see how some giants pass and they're discussed with reverence, right? This was, um, you know, a lion of the art form. But it seems to me with Sondheim, it's been different. You just hear people, this outpouring of really Intensely personal appreciation and genuine grief, like, and and just stories of how uh, his, his music or his lyrics spoke to them at such an early age. And they, they've carried that through. And it's, it's not one generation either. You know, you'll hear current college students speaks that speak this way. Um, So I've um, taken this occasion to kind of read some of those stories, listen to some of those stories. Uh, The plane trip home, it was a Sondheim playlist on my Mm -hmm. phone. Just kind of, that was the entire ride going through um, some of his better known work. Hopefully, maybe in early preparation for a list, we might be able to do of some sort down the road. It's a crazy time of year right now, packing so much year-end stuff in, but it would be really nice if at some point we can revisit Sondheim in the context of film spotting and do a larger appreciation.
0: Yeah, we've been discussing doing a full-on top five retrospective probably after the new year when we get through the onslaught of new releases and our top 10 films of the year. But There's a scene in Tick, Tick, Boom as well, where we watch Whitford's Stephen Sondheim walk into a room and the way everyone instantly recognizes him and starts whispering to everyone around them, oh my God, that's him. My sense is that was his life with every room he walked into for at least probably the last 50 years. And yet he did always come off as someone who always carried himself with such humility, a major loss, a sad loss, and yet we have that tremendous body of work to always remind us of his greatness.
1: Let's get to the latest adaptation of one of Sondheim's earliest contributions to musical theater, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story.
0: Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you. i never seen you before. You're not Puerto Rican. Is that OK? Do you want to start World War III? You know, I wake up to everything I know, either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm going to think for myself.
1: Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? Friend i
0: I'm sure I don't say this out loud enough. God bless producer Sam Van Halgren. Delaying the writing of this setup as long as possible, I decided earlier today to instead catch up on some film spotting email, where I came across this week's edition of the film spotting newsletter. Well, kids, don't let anyone ever tell you procrastination doesn't pay, because found in this magical bit of media was the setup, which is now my setup. Ever since hearing about Spielberg's new adaptation of the classic musical, I've been firmly in the why camp, right, Sam? Why another West Side movie when the one we have is great? Minus the two boring leads, sorry, not sorry. And if we must have another, why Spielberg? But then Steven Sondheim died over the weekend. Sondheim, of course, wrote the lyrics for West Side, in addition to being such a massive figure in music theater, that when he passed, here you go, the only historical figure it made any sense to compare him to was Shakespeare. And Sondheim, well, he seemed excited about Spielberg's adaptation. And at this point, Sam links to an interview that Sondheim did with Stephen Colbert a few months ago, probably many of you saw it making the rounds on social media, where he said that he was a fan of what playwright and screenwriter Tony Kushner did with the structure and the way songs were used. We will link to that interview in the show notes at filmspotting.net. So now Sam continues, I really want to see Spielberg's West Side Story. Josh, I did at least have a set of question in mind before I came across Sam's more rousing queries, which I think I can work in neatly enough as it ties back to his sorry, not sorry jab at original leads, Richard Boehmer and Natalie Wood. You too wished Boehmer and Wood were a bit spicier. That's the term you used in your blurb review of the 61 version. Sam and I want to know, does Spielberg's West Side Story justify its existence? And how pivotal a role do Ansel Elgort and newcomer Rachel Zegler as the new Tony and Maria play in determining your answer? I
1: understand the why question. I think that was maybe my first instinct, too, when hearing it. But, you know, sitting in a theater with this spreading out on a big screen, a very big screen with great sound made me kind of realize I don't care about the why anymore because it was such a rush and seriously we're not talking about Spielberg making, you know, the 48th Spider-Man movie here. This this is a Broadway musical that had one screen adaptation and were <laughs> 50 years later mm-hmm. I th- I think in an age of rehashing every possible intellectual property that exists, we can probably bear the burden of a second West Side Story. Now, that's my answer post-seeing it. Because, again, this is just so confidently staged, so exuberantly performed. And maybe if studios right now we're making more major movie musicals, I would be concerned with that question. I'd say, why bother with this one? We're getting so many. But I know we got In the Heights this year, and maybe you could count Tick, Tick, Boom, and occasionally we'll get one. But it's not like we're awash in this genre in recent years. And so when one comes along that offers me this experience, I'm going to embrace it. I'm not going to worry about what Spielberg could have done otherwise. I'm just going to enjoy what we got on the screen because it's pretty great. Now, I'll say <laughs> I'm, that doesn't mean that this is a West Side Story for the ages. And as I, you've already intimated by that review, referencing my review, I didn't think the original was either. Okay. And what's interesting here is that these two adaptations share some of the same limitations. And we'll get to that. The casting... That you hinted at, I think, is part of that. Um, but right now, I want to start with the exuberance I had at watching this movie that I felt, I think, in the theater around me. You were in the row behind me. So I'd love to hear um, if you felt the same thing.
0: Yeah, I'd say that I was, though I can't wait to hear what you think about its purported limitations. I think there are a lot of reasons that justify its existence, and I think your overall argument is very well said. We're going to spend, I'm sure, a lot of time here on those leads I asked about, even though I might just say Ariana DeBose as Anita, David Alvarez as Bernardo, and I'd say Mike Feist as Rip. Those three reasons right there are enough to see this West Side Story, aren't they?
1: Yes, I would agree with all three of those and put Feist maybe on his own level. And, but this is one of the perennial issues with this material is that even in the original, in in the very story, those are the three we're most invested in. So you're Mm -hmm. almost at a point here with a remake of wondering, is it a, is it a story, a book character issue, or is it a performance Mm -hmm. issue?
0: I don't know. Yeah. I will also name drop, I suppose, here that I didn't realize this at the time. Sophie, who went with me, had to remind me of this. The whole time I was looking at Riff, and I really was mesmerized by Mike Feist. I didn't know who was playing Riff, and I felt that he was so familiar. Well, I saw him as the OG Connor Murphy in Dear Evan Hansen a few years ago, where he was also remarkable. I believe earned a Tony, not just a nomination. I think he won. We can look that up here as we're talking, but he is really a revelation here. We'll maybe come back to those characters. Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the leads. I'm not going to engage in the blasphemy against Bamer and Wood like you and Sam, not because I think it's completely off base, but because I just have too much fondness for the original film. That said, here, is it a huge improvement that we have Zegler playing a Latina woman instead of Natalie Wood? Of course it is. But I think she's also got the singing chops and the acting chops. And Elgort 2, you can't say... He doesn't smolder. There were, in fact, many sequences where I wondered if when Ziegler saw the first cut of the movie, she didn't feel a little bit cheated because as radiant as she is, he glows in this movie. There is this perpetual golden hue on his face, even in the darkest night scenes. They really figured out a way to light him and make him shine. And part of why he smolders, this is really the big question I want to get to with you. It's the question I'm still wrestling with about this movie. And it's something Sophie and I were discussing on the way home from the movie. I do want to give a little bit of background. I mentioned Sophie a fair amount here on the show because she's a budding cinephile herself. And she now watches just about every movie I see and review with me. And she is, of course, as our trivia spotting regulars know, she's musicals obsessed. And she is obsessed with West Side Story. It started maybe five or six years ago when I took her to see West Side Story in 70 millimeter at the music Box's 70 millimeter film festival. But obviously she was much younger then, and she didn't swoon over it actually at the time she was maybe 12, maybe even a little bit younger, but she subsequently watched it a lot on her own. And then as she got more and more into musical theater, it really became a favorite of hers. So she is such a fan. When I say obsessed, you know, she she can and did on the way home enumerate every change or variation she noticed from the original. And she, like me, was a real fan of this movie and overall of the performances. But what she said was missing for her from Elgort's performance compared to Bamer is the joy. That was what she felt was really missing for her to embrace the movie as much as she embraces the original. And I think Boehmer is, just in general, a lighter presence than Elgort is. But my response to her was, well, of course there is less joy. Spielberg and Kushner are so determined to make him dark and dangerous, aren't they? I mean, this is Steven Spielberg's West Side Story Begins. That was my sense of watching it. It was almost like Christopher Nolan when he reboots Batman and says, I'm going to take this kind of fantasy musical version of New York and I'm going to make it as gritty as I can possibly make it. And I can get into the reasons why I think that and why I think it does actually kind of work for the performance overall, even if it's something I'm still wrestling with. But I'm curious if you had a similar reaction or not.
1: Yeah, I I would... um not say smolder i I think that he that's definitely what he was going for and there is the one scene of the two of them locking eyes across the dance where um something is at work there Uh, but otherwise it's called janish kaminsky well yes so the cinematography as you're talking about him glowing i thought that was one bit of um filmmaking that maybe the Spielberg and Kaminsky were overplaying their hand because so many of these sequences, it's almost as if, um, you know, the the end of Close Encounters, the aliens are coming down on half of these scenes and Elgort is in most of those. At first, I kind of liked it, like the lights, lights will turn on by themselves that are in the setting. So at the gym where the dance is, there's these lights off to the side. And as Mm -hmm. the two meet each other behind the stands, those lights turn on. Nobody turned them on. Later when Elgort is um, walking through at night alone, uh, I think it's like a basketball court outside, the lights themselves turn on. And I was thinking that's kind of, cool. this is kind of close encounters. Like the lights have their own, they're their own entities, right? But by the time we get to the cloisters in New York City and it's coming through the stained glass on him, I feel like that was a little bit overplayed. But that's in the filmmaking. As far as, far as the performance goes, I want to say this about Elgort first. Has a lovely and very delicate singing voice. Yes. And um, that's way more than you can say for Baymer, right? Who was dubbed in the original. Um, and I appreciate that about the performance. Otherwise, I don't know Adam um even in that dance sequence he's he's sort of lurching around and they make a point of how tall he is um when Maria and Tony first meet she may even yeah. jokes about it right and you can see there's a good foot between the top of their mm-hmm. the tops of their heads but it's it's not just that he's taller than her it's that in every scene he's um, he's moving more slowly. He's, he's heavier. I think you said something about lightness with Bamer, And I, Oh yeah. Yeah. I get, if you appreciated that as the thematic connection with him being dangerous, I never felt he was dangerous. I kept being told he was dangerous. I kept, I kept having him tell me he was afraid of what he was going to do, but he seemed like this to go to the Edgar Wright film. He starred in a baby faced big kind of clotting guy. Now, during Cool, the production number Cool, um, I'll admit when he gets to move and actually involve himself in some choreography um, that that scene works. I think it's very effective. I think that's one of the stronger scenes here, um, partly because and we should maybe get to this, it sounds like Sophie has a a really good sense of this, but how they transferred the settings for some of the iconic production numbers. Right. Mm -hmm. And I like how that one is set on this, almost a really elevated pier with holes in the planks. So it's dangerous where they step and he's, he's very nimble and jumping over them. But in terms of this, Tony, um, I found him to be dull as Bamer was, but in different ways. Something about the way he spoke. He's very mumble-mouthed, and here's where here's where it clarified for me, Adam. I will say is there is another production number highlight. America, you know, maybe my favorite. Which. Is the best in the original, too. Yes, it's fantastic. And here, speaking of transferring locale, I think in the original it's in a parking garage, and this is brought out into the streets of the neighborhood. So mm-hmm. there's more room to roam. Um, beautiful. I mean, we'll get to, like, why the other actors you mentioned are the highlights in in their dancing and their singing, just their, the personas that they're bringing. So we get to that. It ends with the whole neighborhood, very in the heights-ish, right, celebrating the performance they just gave, and it's a, it, it's they're cheering themselves and just kind of out of breath with what they just performed, what we just saw. We're all on a high. Hard cut, like purposeful, distinct hard cut to a close up of Ansel Elgort sitting taking Spanish lessons and learning how to say, I'm happy to see you again. And for me, that was like, oh, this just sent directly home. The problem here is because we were on this high and we get to him completely bringing the movie down. And I see how that could work with the thematic resonance you were just talking about, is that he's going to be the literal heavy of the film. But for me, I don't know. I found it not to be... If it was dangerous in the way you were describing, I could buy it. But for me, it was just kind of like, a, oh, I could like my whole body just kind of sagged when we went from that dancing to his face.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know that that's something any West Side Story production can completely solve, because based on these two, whether it's David Alvarez or it's George Chikiris or it's Ariana DeBose here or it's Rita Moreno in the original I'm always going to want to spend more time with the sharks. I'm always going to want to spend more time with Bernardo. He's just that much more charismatic, I think than Tony is, but does it I'll have to be that the, way though does I don't know ha- if it does that's that's really the question, right, But I'll split the difference with you a little bit on on Tony. I do truly hear what you're saying and and know you're not completely wrong, but I'll go back to the grittiness, right the Original prologue, if you think about it, and I rewatched some of it today on YouTube just to make sure that I wasn't misremembering it. There's some graffiti on the walls, right? It isn't Central Park West, but it feels like this musicals version, this romanticized version of New York City. And then you watch the opening of this film. Think about the efforts Spielberg undertakes here to extend that prologue. And showcase that grittiness, the griminess of the streets, the way they raise the stakes on all of these character circumstances. These neighborhoods they're living in, they're not just neglected, they're being demolished. Literally. Right, right underneath great them. opening. They they live in a war zone. Yes. We see the sign, slum renovations. So you basically have two choices. You can you can take the city's money and leave, or you can not take the money and you can stay, and you're gonna get kicked out. And that all does, I think, here's a Tony Kushner touch that I think works, and I think there are many of them. It underscores the irony of these gangs fighting when they have actually so much in common, including what should be a common enemy. So I like that tragic irony. And it also reinforces, in a way, that you don't really get in the original why these gangs are so angry in the first place. Now, how this ties back to Elgort, well, just as you have to suspend disbelief in the original that Natalie Wood is Latina, you have to suspend disbelief that Richard Boehmer is a badass. And it's more than just that here, Elgort as Tony seems capable of beating people up. Again, he is very tall. There there does just have to be something about his presence where you truly understand why someone like Riff and the rest of the Jets look up to him the way they do and why what he says can Carries so much weight, and why he's so confident, albeit completely naively, in the fact that he thinks he can just convince Bernardo to like him. This is a Tony who is is scared of what he's capable of doing, that he can hurt people, but he's not scared of anyone else. This is a Tony that served time in Sing Sing. Josh, did you believe any of I mean, so, so that, that? I mean, he's saying that, and I'm arguing, like, there is no, there is no, no way, Babyface. <laughs> no, I, I, I saw it. I saw it enough. Did I see it to the degree you would have liked or maybe even I would have liked? Would another performer have really embodied that better? Quite possibly. But was it a major improvement on Bamer In that respect, I, I think it was. It probably makes him a better, more interesting Tony because I do think it also supports the plot that when he does kill someone, I believed anyway, that he was actually capable of it. And I think Kushner and Spielberg here have given us a West Side Story. That in other ways, too, makes more sense psychologically and is more realistic, if you will, in terms of the character behavior and actions, which I do simultaneously appreciate. And I also wonder, is that what is that what West Side Story actually needed or Romeo and Juliet? Actually needed more psychological realism.
1: Well, I think you're talking about which I agree with the, the sense of cultural disenfranchisement that is the yes. undercurrent, the shared undercurrent to this telling, which was present in the original, but is more pronounced here and maybe in some more interesting ways. Um, but yeah, not, you know, not to spend too much time on Albert Elgort, but I will say as a thought experiment, you know, it, he doesn't necessarily have to be that dark you can say Adam or that driver. What's that? Are you going to say Imagine Adam Driver? No, no, no. How about this? I'm going to go back to In the Heights. How about Anthony Ramos? As, Mm -hmm. you know, plei Navi, totally different character. Not dangerous at all. But what did he have? That was the only guy I liked other characters in that movie. But he was almost too compelling because that was supposed to be a three-person story. And the two women in that story kind of faded to the background because Ramos was just such a dynamic screen presence. That's the guy. Give me an actor, not necessarily just Ramos, but give me an actor who can do that, who can convince me that he's my best friend in two seconds, convince me that he can look across the dance floor and that Maria is going to instantly fall for him. And then also, yes, he would need some of those other layers to suggests that he's capable of violence he's confused and what i got here from this tony from elgort is just like the guy's naive i didn't see confidence in him thinking Um, he could make um
0: bernardo his his friend i just saw naivete i mean he's
1: bernardo makes a crack
0: i believe i believe that he is truly not scared of bernardo which is something i never believed in the 61
1: well okay is he better than Bamer? Yes. But we're talking <laughs> a really low bar there. He he jumped that bar by singing on his own. But we should, let's get to some of the other performances because I'm totally with you that those are the characters that you want to watch. And I mean, honestly, I think that uh, Riff, Mike Feist as Riff, is way more dangerous. I mean, if put me in a dark There's alley. No doubt about put it. me in a dark alley. I don't want anything to do with Riff. I yes. would happily have Two Ansel Elgarts. <laughs> that was my impression from this movie. And here's here's what um, Feist does, because it ties in with what you were talking about, Adam, with this, the psychology of this mm-hmm. um, and the fact that we understand what is driving the behavior of these two gangs. And they're two different things, right? So for, for Riff, you think about how it's the place... The Jets are in the social strata now and the poverty they're experiencing. What does the lieutenant say? Great line, which I think is new to this production. He describes the Jets as the last of the can't make it Caucasians. Yep. He talks about the others who have moved to the suburbs, right? Or, or a wealthier part of New York City. And that you're left. And you're going to be wiped out because you're you're just bottom of the rung. That is what is driving the Jets and what is driving Riff in particular. What is the line that Riff says at, at one point to, to Tony, uh, who cares who I am? Nobody, not even me. Again, we'll have to check with Sophie if that's a line from the original. I don't remember it, but either way, it, it is so loaded and lets us know what is driving Riff. And we understand every violent to us, irrational, uh unwise, dumb, uh self-inflicting choice he makes and we feel sorry for this kid. Um and so Feist is doing all that for the camera, screen level acting. You mentioned his Tony win and his Broadway success, but he knows how to act for the camera here, a lot of intense close-ups and we should know, you know, the choreography he's performing is phenomenal. Um, it's It reminded me, this is another thing I want to, I'm eager to read kind of comparison pieces because surely some of Jerome Robbins' choreography is carried over here. A lot of it looked familiar, but we also have Justin Peck adding as the choreography here. So I imagine adding some things um, and Feist is managing to bring those together in ways he, he has what I remember from the original is like that sort of instinctive, um, bolt of energy expression to his dancing. So it's yes. not polished. It's it's
0: dangerous. Like that's the dangerous danger. is the word. That is yes, it. I I agree with you. And I would just say, not to keep going back to Elgort, it's just a different type of danger where I think that what makes them a convincing pairing is that Riff is dangerous in a different way, which is that he actually knows he's not as tough as Tony. And I think Tony does embody that presence that he needs. I believed anyway, not only that, that relationship that he has with the other characters around him, including Bernardo, but that really important relationship between him and riff riff is dangerous because he's so unpredictable and because he truly feels like he has nothing to lose. And actually, even though he's so much bigger, of course, than Russ Tamblin, So he also is more physically imposing and you can actually believe him as well, going up at least against Bernardo and not being totally sure who's, who's going to win. He, he, still comes off as someone who's undersized and who is scrappy yeah. and he's skinny. the underdog. And and yeah, he really is and that that does actually make him someone who someone you have to worry about.
1: Yeah, cuz he's desperate. You that recognize des- that yeah, he's desperate. Yeah, that's
0: it. The desperation comes through with him and it isn't the desperation that Tony has. There's a calmness to him physically that I think Elgort pulls off that I think that character needs to to actually separate him from someone like Riff. And I know we're probably going to talk about some of the other performances we've already named them, but You've got someone like Ariana DeBose who oh, I'm wow. not otherwise familiar with. You want to talk about a presence and someone with such immense talent and filling in for some pretty amazing shoes to begin That's with. That's just with it, right? Moreno. Right. But, but making you appreciate her take on the Anita character. And I love here, and this may be in the original, maybe there's a moment like this in the Robert Wise version, but there is a scene that comes late in this film where she's in a room with Maria and... And with Lieutenant Shank, who is played by Corey Stahl, and he is just casually (laughs) dismissive and racist and insensitive in all the ways you would expect him to be, despite the the trauma that she has just suffered through and the aplomb with which she handles it, the calmness, the assuredness that that sense that, yeah, she experiences this all the time. And no matter how she is feeling right now, she's not going to let him get to her. But then as soon as she walks out the door, what happens? Spielberg gives her that moment, gives her that moment to stop, to pause on the staircase as she's going downstairs and finally exhale. She really takes a breath yeah. as if as if she was holding that breath the whole time. She was kind of withholding every fiber of who she is, is that fighter that she really is. And she has to do that because she's not going to let him win. She's not going to react. But she finally does for us, for the camera, get to show her emotion.
1: Yeah. And that's the distinctive disenfranchisement that Anita and the other Puerto Rican residents of the neighborhood are experiencing, right? If if for for the Jets, it's this um, lower class strata they've been put into. Um, For Anita, it's the discrimination that she faces on. a daily basis. And one little touch that I liked throughout the film that emphasizes this is how frequently, I don't think there are any subtitles at any point, if I remember correctly, Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a lot of um, dialogue in Spanish, exchanges in Spanish. And I really like that we did not get subtitles. Um, I liked that it kind of said, if you're not keeping up, that's your problem. To the audience. I think there's something pretty powerful about that choice, especially as you said in that scene with the lieutenant, when these characters are frequently being told English only, speak English. We speak English here. So I really like the touch of that. Um, They're not going to speak English in a fair amount of these scenes, and um, you're out of luck if you don't know Spanish. Uh, So I also think about uh, in terms of Dubose's performance, she too, like Feist, really knows. Um, how to present the character for the camera, not just the stage, which is not something every you know person with Broadway experience can make that shift to. And she can do it absolutely. Gets a lot of close-ups that work. She's fantastic in the dance sequences. And yeah, as you said, kind of has the opposite problem um, that, um, say, Elgort had or even that Zegler has where they're not holding themselves up to iconic performances. Here, DuBose is. Rita Moreno has a small part. Well, it's actually not that small. Um, She has a fair amount of scenes. Um, She's in this movie. But yeah, to live up to that
0: and be able to offer her own interpretation is incredibly impressive. I referenced this earlier when referencing Sam's remarks in the newsletter. Sondheim, in that interview with Colbert, did say that he was a fan. What did you expect him to say? But he said he was a fan of this adaptation, and his line was that there are some imaginative and surprising things with the way songs are used. And I was wondering what you think Sondheim is thinking of when he said that. For me, the most bold, the most surprising, probably is in the way the movie chooses to make use of Rita Moreno. She's playing a character Who doesn't exist or exists in a very different form in the original movie. And there's a really bold choice to have her own something that, well, let's just say it's not that way in the original. And I'm being a little vague about it because I think if there is anything you could say in terms of a spoiler- (laughs) With West Side Story, it's probably this moment that she gets that I'm alluding to. But there are some other bold choices, too. And again, you go back to some of these iconic sequences from the 61. How are they going to stage that dance scene, the love at first sight scene, where Wise does that blurred effect, where it's as if they're the only people in the entire room. Everyone just sort of disappears into this fog around them. Now, as you referenced, it's it's those lights. It's these kind of spotlights and the way they come through the, the bars, the open seams in the bleachers behind which they're talking, it really is striking. It it does use light in that way to just really focus your attention on them to heighten the emotions of that scene. I I said bars earlier because I think that's another deliberate choice with this movie. There's a lot of use of that visual motif of, of people always sort of whether they're actually in a jail setting or a courthouse – or wherever they're at in the streets, pulling down a fence. There's always this kind of barrier in front of them, like they're kind of hemmed in or trapped. But another interesting choice to me is, and again, this comes, I will give full credit to Sophie for helping me talk this out and her having such a good memory of the original. This speaks too to the decision to make this overall version so much heavier, if you will. One hand, one heart. Here, they're in a church. This is... What's in the 61 version, Josh, a really playful scene where she works as a seamstress where they have the shop to themselves and they're playing with the mannequins and it's very light and they get married to each other, but they get married in a playful way. They're play acting. I, Anton, take thee, Maria. I, Maria, take thee, Anton. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. To love. And to honor, to hold and to keep from each sun to each moon. Here, it's done with the most somberness and seriousness in an actual religious setting, like within within a church when they when they're getting married, (laughs) they're getting married in this film. So I'll contradict myself again or point out the contradiction. I like that the movie makes a clear break in a lot of ways from the original that it does something dramatically different with a scene like that. I'm not sure that it's necessarily an improvement, but I'm glad that we have both of them. I do think the other one you mentioned cool really is effective here because in the 61, it comes after they've already had the brawl and they put it here before the rumble. So that throwing around of the gun not only is dangerous in and of itself, because as you said, they're playing with a gun and they've got that that walkway that has the big hole in it. And you feel like at any moment, someone might go through it, they're jumping over it, but it it foreshadows the danger that's to come. It foreshadows the tragedy of what's to come in a way that I do think is more effective dramatically than it being a cool down sequence like it is in the original version yeah it does work as foreshadowing but i've got to say
1: what i felt was more pronounced in this structuring and is also something of an issue with the original but there is a steep drop um after the big fight scene in terms of and understandably so like you're dealing with a lot of intense trauma after that fight sequence. But for me coming out of it, what I thought this really could have used was one more production number, one that didn't have to be joyous or effervescent necessarily, but had to be, um, you know, make us sit up in a way that the other ones did. And I did not remember that cool occurred later in the original and, and coming now that you say that that's exactly what this needed. This needed cool. You wanted to cool down. You needed cool because it is so engaging. It's so well done. It's on such a big stage level of like America. And I think it would probably have helped me th- that this last third is kind of a long slog for me. Um, not just because it's depressing. It has to be. That's the story. But because we don't get anything as engaging in terms of musical theater as we did previously. but I do want to go back to um, you know you're talking about bold choices and I think for me what was really thrilling about this film is it kind of goes back to the question we started with why would Spielberg do this? Well, the guy may not have a lot of experience in in you know musical, Films, I, we could think maybe of the beginning of Temple of Doom, or you know, to me, I was thinking of 1941 a lot, just the the period and the sheer scale of that film. But we don't think of him as as being necessarily a musical film director, but we do recognize him as a cinematic genius. So the question is, how's he going to make this a movie? How how is he going to use camera? How's he going to use editing? And we discussed that unbroken opening shot drifting over these crumbling tenement buildings, um, beautiful. We also get anthematically important. It's bookended with the final shot, which I'm not going to spoil, but is a very mournful moment that we see from far, far away as the camera rises amidst the steps of a fire escape and each step frames what we're watching a little differently. Those are both two things you couldn't do in a theater, right? So Spielberg is bringing the cinema to this story. I mentioned the scene of Maria and Tony looking at each other across the dance floor. You could do that on a stage, but you couldn't get that rush, the rushing blur of teenagers in between them, like these colorful trains on a track, right? Um, And then In terms of the editing, there's a great hard edit that I think works really well. Really early on, I think it's Riff is tossing a brick in the direction of the camera. Hard cut, and we should say Sarah Brochard and Michael Kahn, the editors here, longtime Spielberg collaborators. Hard cut from that brick coming towards the camera to a shot of Tony catching a can that's been tossed by Riff. They're in the basement of the bodega where Tony works. So so little things like that. You know, make this a very cinematic experience, which is what I was hoping for from Spielberg. Um, And I think that's that's largely what he delivers.
0: West Side Story opens in wide release on December 10th when you see it. And if you agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. From musicals to music documentaries, what is
1: the best music doc of the last 10 years? Results from the film spotting poll are next. Plus, a review of one of our most anticipated films of 2021, Sean Baker's Red Rocket. Stay with us. You wanna live in this lousy world? Play it cool. You
0: wanna get even. Get cool. I wanna bust. Bust cool. I wanna go. Go cool. Boy, boy, crazy boy. Get cool, boy,
1: got a rocket
0: in your pocket. Keep coolly cool, boy. Don't get
1: hot, because, man, you've got some high times ahead.
0: 25 years since our first run together. 1900 and nothing. It's a long time. What you doing? Getting mixed up with her?
1: You are marvelous, Rose. We were married Sunday.
0: That's from the trailer for Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. It's currently playing in limited release. It also came to Netflix earlier this week. Next week, Josh, we will finally get back to Campion.
1: Yeah, we were on a roll there. Like every week, took a little break, but can't wait to get back to it.
0: Yeah, we did finish up or almost finished up our Campion oeuvre review a few weeks ago with Power of the Dog, we will have the ultimate finish. We will have seen in order every feature film by the great director, Jane Campion. So in addition to reviewing the Power of the Dog on our next show, we will also have our oeuvre review awards and we'll give credit On next week's show, Josh, where it's due. But I listened to a few different listeners who wrote in that we had some decent options for the title of these awards, but I think we landed in the right spot. We're calling it We Are the Campions. Kind of have to. It's right there. You're okay with that pun, right? Because it's in a title? It's in a title. Approved. The Larson Larson rule book of puns coming out in paperback everywhere (laughs) this Christmas. (laughs) Is Power of the Dog eligible for the awards? I say that it is. Just Mm. like with Christopher Nolan, even though Tennant didn't make the shortlist for any of our categories. I don't think it snagged anything. I don't think. Technically, you can't call it a full oeuvre view if you're not going to include every film. So, yeah, I think The Power of the Dog is eligible. We'll wrap that up next week. Okay, fair warning, though. It's going to make our choices a lot tougher. I can tell you that. I'm sure. I'm sure. You've seen it. I haven't, but I believe
1: it. I am excited. Also next week, Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting T-shirt. In case you missed it, here's a bit of our last massacre.
0: You know, it's a... Como se dice? Manicotti. No, it's a hot dog, hot dog, hot dog, hot dogs.
1: Just so you know, Adam, that's how I've been ordering all my hot dogs (laughs) since you (laughs) you did that.
0: Yeah, (laughs) you imitating me imitating him. Yeah, it doesn't confuse the guy at Pops at all. I'm sure not. If you know what film we massacred, you just have to email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, December 6th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it on our next show. Over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their White Lies pairing. Rebecca Hall's Passing, starring Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson. That's on Netflix. Very good movie. We recommend. And... They're talking about that in connection to Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life from 1959 with Lana Turner and Odie Henderson, friend of our show, really fine critic, is part of both of these shows. And according to Genevieve's notes, they discuss how each film balances its messaging, storytelling and style after digging into passings, black and white cinematography, literary source material and ambiguous ending. So a lot to chew on there in these Two shows, The Next Picture Show, out now, out every week. Along with Odie, you'll hear Next Picture Show hosts
1: Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes are out every
0: Tuesday. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more information at nextpictureshow.net. One way that you can support our show is to join the film spotting family over on Patreon. We may be taking a month off from trivia spotting, but we are not taking a month off from bonus content our members certainly earn that a mere five dollars a month gets you a few benefits but the big one or at least we think it's the biggest one is that monthly bonus episode and we had a really fun talk which we recorded after our last episode which we call ask us anything this was volume two we did volume one back in october and i thought we had some good stuff this time josh what about you yeah, I
1: like these kind of questions where we don't have to do any research, any real preparation. We can just, it's kind of like recreating the Q&A at the end of some sort of live event. So we were asked about the times we have fought on the show. If things have ever gotten so heated, we had to cool down regroup. So yeah, we dug into that one and a couple more.
0: Yeah. A couple questions about those shows and whether we prefer to have heated disagreements or do we like being on the same page? Do we like to have a split review? We also got asked, what movie do we feel most qualified to do an audio commentary for? You know, that's a better question maybe for our listeners. I'd love to know if they have an opinion about us having listened to the show, many of them for a long time. Do they have a sense of which movie they'd most like to hear the two of us talk about or maybe they think we have the best take on? I'm going to put it back on our listeners and ask them anything. Feedback at filmspotting.net. If you are curious to hear our answers to those great questions, you can get it now in a bonus episode available exclusively to our family members over on Patreon. They deliver right to whatever pod catching device that you use. Patreon.com slash filmspotting. The best bit of us, always has been and always will be, is when we're backs against the wall. All we've got is us. What do you think? When I find myself in time. Just some lads from Liverpool there, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, in Peter Jackson's three-part documentary, Get Back. It came to Disney Plus over Thanksgiving weekend. We were talking about it last week, Josh, as a six-hour documentary. I knew it was divided into three parts. Somehow I had convinced myself that it would be a little bit more manageable and that it was three sort of two hour episodes. I don't know where I got that from. Clearly I was wrong because episode two alone is almost three hours. It's, it's eight hours in total, culled from dozens of hours of video and audio footage that was captured back during the making of the Beatles final album, let it be. And really the, the making what was supposed to be a live television show. I learned Watching part one, Sophie and I made it through part one, Josh, I haven't, I haven't been able to make time for the remaining six hours, but I can't wait. And one thing I'll say about it, even though it will be hilarious that I am in any way, shape or form, including myself and the bands I've been in, in my life in a conversation about the Beatles and this documentary. But I will just tell you this, the one thing that felt familiar, the only thing that felt familiar watching all of that genius play out on screen was, and I've been in two bands in my life, one in college for a three, four year run. And then one that started in junior high and lasted all throughout high school. We still play together to this day. Occasionally, that is really what happens in rehearsals. When you hit any kind of snag, there's any kind of lull or there's any kind of disagreement. You just don't know where to go next. You instantly start doing basically what they just did there in that clip. You start riffing on other songs other people's songs, doing them in a waltz form or making them really dramatic and slow or making a slow dramatic song feel like a heavy metal song. I, I think it's just something bands do. And to know that even the Beatles did that, it, it reassures me somehow, Josh.
1: All right. I'll take your word for it. I feel a little bit like when I listen to, you know, the NBA podcast and the hosts start comparing what goes on in their rec league to, to the league. But
0: I believe you know what you're talking about. I'll take that. So a couple weeks back in anticipation of get back, we asked you in our film spotting poll, what is the best music documentary of the last 10 years? I think a lot of people have seen get back. will probably want to put that in the conversation. We gave you these options searching for sugar man, which was the 2013 best doc feature Oscar winner, Morgan Neville's 20 feet from stardom. That one, that same award in 2014 Asif Kapadia's Amy, about Amy Winehouse, that was the Oscar winner in 2016. Liz Garbus, What Happened, Miss Simone, that was a nominee in 2016. We've also got Brett Morgan's Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, very good film. Edgar Wright's doc from this year, The Sparks Brothers, or you could go with Questlove, Summer of Soul, also from 2021. Finally, another 2021 film. Todd Haynes, very good. The Velvet Underground. And if you don't like any of those options, you can always write in other. How did it come out, Josh?
1: Pretty bunched up here at the bottom. So I'll run through these quickly. They each received between 4 and 11% of the vote in last place. What happened? Miss Simone, then the Velvet Underground, the Sparks Brothers, 20 feet from stardom, and Kurt Cobain, montage of heck. Other did receive 11%. So yeah, showed pretty well for a poll there for Other. Then jumping up here to 17% of the vote, searching for Sugar Man, 19% of the vote went to Amy,
0: and Questlove's Summer of Soul won the poll with 21%. And just in case you were worried that this was recency bias, Adam Grossman says no recency bias here. It's just a fact that Questlove's Summer of Soul is a wonderful piece of filmmaking. It's directed and, in particular, edited with such craft, creativity, and heart. And it feels like the truest statement I've seen of Black power, Black people, and Black music. My favorite movie of 2021, yes, but also the best music documentary of the last decade. What a celebration. Shoshana
1: Rosenbaum went with the second place choice. Amy. Because I remember how devastated I felt after watching it, knowing somehow more deeply that the up-and-coming musician who I'd been captivated by from the release of her first album was suddenly gone from the world forever, and ruined the fact that I had never gotten the chance to see her live. But I also want to put in a plug for What Happened Miss Simone, because I love Nina Simone just as much, and that film is devastating in a different way making us realize how great Nina Simone was as an artist, even in the face of the racism and sexism that warped her life, and making us wonder how much more she might have been able to give the world had her genius been carefully nurtured instead.
0: Here's Stephen Hill, who says, had to go with the Sparks Brothers. I adore Summer of Soul, but the Sparks Brothers really digs into the creative process and why musicians continue to create, even in the face of a perceived lack of success. Mix that with Edgar Wright's visual panache and you have a documentary accessible to people who don't even know who Sparks are, which was me coming into the film. And other vote here from Scott Ross, Rolling
1: Thunder Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese with particular emphasis on story. This film, masterminded by two titans of their respective professions, would top my list just for its slippery depiction of the nature of truth and mythmaking. However, it also contains charismatic live performances of Dylan performing Knocking on Heaven's Door, Hurricane and the Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll, with a transfixing Scarlet Rivera on violin and the great Mick Ronson on guitar.
0: So I really love Rolling Thunder review. Think that Sam ruled it ineligible because it's partly not nonfiction or something like that. But I remember that performance. I said it here on the show, the lonesome death of Hattie Carroll, that rocked up version that Dylan gives us here it's really astounding. I want to say, if it wasn't my winner, it was certainly in the mix as a finalist for my favorite music moment of that year. Jake Scubish says, This prompt is the perfect opportunity to sing the praises of one of the very best films of 2021, one we haven't seen, Josh. Billy Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. It's an incredible portrait of celebrity growing up, the creative process, and manages to both humanize and mythologize one of the biggest pop stars in the world. Can't recommend it highly enough as if there weren't enough movies to try and squeeze in at the end
1: of the year. Sean Morrison went other for Mistaken for Strangers, the 2013 documentary about The National, directed by lead singer Matt Berninger's brother Tom. I don't think it's particularly interesting as a music documentary, so much as it's an excuse for Tom, an Ohio kid who still lives with his parents, to try and understand his older brother, who moved away to New York for a life of indie-level celebrity and success. By turns funny and poignant, it's a rewarding watch, even if you don't
0: care about their music at all. Gold star for Sean Morrison. Have you seen "Mistaken for Strangers," Josh? Yeah, good. Fascinating. Really, in the ways good. he's talking about. Exactly. I think it was in my top five of 2013. So great choice there. Finally, another really great, inspired choice. Tom, who says, "Pop star never stop, never stopping," is clearly better than all of the choices, though some may doubt its authenticity. I think that's why Sam left it out. Yeah. Tom's suggesting none of that happened. None of that really happened. (laughs) Thanks, Tom. Thanks to everyone who voted in that poll. You can also vote in the current film spotting poll now at filmspotting.net. The question is, what is your favorite? Favorite, not best. I'm obligated to say Paul Thomas Anderson film. We're holding results hostage until they agree to open licorice pizza in Chicago. (laughs) Or at least until they send me a screening link though, as we're recording this, Mm. by the time most people hear this, I'm guessing I won't have received a screening link, but there is a Saturday night. If it's not sold out already, Saturday night, this coming Saturday night in Chicago, I think it's December 4th, Josh, if I'm looking at the calendar correctly, the music box is having a one-off screening. Oh yeah, I saw that. 35 millimeter. I do have tickets to that right now. I'm hoping I can get out of the house and see. Licorice Pizza on the big screen at the venerable Music Box Theater. But what would you guess are the current top three vote getters? What do you think is at the top of this poll, Josh? You can riff on that while I look up the answer.
1: So I believe we said there will be blood is kind of the consensus masterpiece pick. Yeah. But the way you're phrasing that, it makes me think something else has snuck ahead of it. Um, It could be Boogie Nights. I'm going to say it's Magnolia. Magnolia. I think people are going to say Magnolia is their favorite, just because I feel like whenever it comes up on the show, I think we did a Sacred Cow review of it at some point, yep. didn't we? Um, yeah. Best of 99. That was it. People really come out strong for that one. Could it be Magnolia?
0: Magnolia is actually in a respectable fourth place oh, wow. at the moment. Oh, wow. Okay. 14%. Your favorite, I think, or what you imagine will be your favorite Someday if it's not already. Phantom Thread, actually in third. I 17%. Love it. I love seeing that. Then we go with an oldie but a goodie. Boogie nights just ahead oh. of that, 18%. But you know what? Our listeners did go with chalk here. They went with There Will Be Blood okay. as their favorite. So take that, Sam. There is no favorite or best. There's just <laughs> there's just the best. And people are saying by the tune of 23% that it's There Will Be Blood, but there is still time to change that vote if you so desire. Go to the main page of our website, filmspotting.net, to vote now.
1: So why are you back, Mr. Hollywood? You're Mikey. Welcome back, dude. I'm on top of my game right now on like every single possible level. Physical stamina, my mind is sharp. I'm taking 5-HTP for serotonin in my brain. Yeah. With my skill and ability, there's no denying what I can do. The universe is on my side, bro. That's Simon Rex in Red Rocket, the new film from director Sean Baker. As we said, Adam, a favorite of ours here on the show. 2015's Tangerine, that was the film that put Baker on our radar and ended up making our top 10 list that year. So did his follow-up, 2017's The Florida Project. Is that right? That sounds right. We both had The Florida Project on our top 10. We did. Both of those films gave us a sympathetic but not sentimental portraits of people living on the fringes of American society. Tangerine followed trans sex workers, played by Katana Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor, as they go on a Christmas Eve revenge mission. The Florida Project introduced us to the denizens of Orlando's magic castle motel, including a young girl and her mother. The subject of Red Rocket is Simon Rex's Mikey Sabre a longtime adult film actor who's fallen on hard times and returns to his Texas hometown. The plot maybe sounds like a comedy and... Yeah, the cover of the screener looks like a comedy. I would probably describe it as that first, but, you know, it's a Sean Baker film, so it's a little more complicated than that. Did you find, Adam, uh, that Red Rocket fit into that description I kind of just gave, of Tangerine and the Florida Project. Did it bring an empathetic eye to a sad and somewhat complicated corner of America?
0: Absolutely. I don't think Sean Baker is capable of making another kind of movie. If you want to talk about what his auteur stamp is, that that's it. And we've we've talked about that quite a bit, not only in reviewing those movies over the years, but – in our top 10 lists, and I think some other appreciations of Baker's work. And I want to say, this is decidedly a Sean Baker film for the reasons just mentioned. I also think stylistically, I wasn't surprised somehow. He's always playing with different film stock or different aesthetic approaches, whether it was the iPhone approach in Tangerine or going to something like the Florida Project, which really takes a space that I don't think most of us think of as conventionally beautiful and makes it quite quite fantastic and lovely. And here it's this bit grittier, 16 millimeter, but very colorful look at this kind of dilapidated Texas town. And that's the thing I'll say about Baker quickly, visually, like I mentioned with the Florida project, no matter how rough these people seem around the edges, no matter how difficult their lives are, no matter how kind of destitute this place, this environment does seem and how just kind of out for themselves, everybody is, that doesn't mean that when he's doing a long tracking shot, Baker doesn't make it look pretty. He, he He's going to give the space, that same type of attention mm-hmm. that he's going to give the characters. I he think he finds the, empathy, the beauty. He does. He finds the beauty in it, even if many people watching it might not see it. And, the the movie i thought of though watching this i thought of two actually i wonder if you thought of either of them but the one i'll start with it isn't even so much the movie or the main character as a conversation i had about the movie and main character with the filmmakers it's uncut gems and i'm sorry if you're someone out there unlike me who actually does consume a lot of film criticism i'm guessing i'm not the only person who's brought that up that there seems to be a fair amount of Howard Ratner, that Adam Sandler character in Mikey Saber here. But the interview, if you remember it, Josh, I started off by asking Josh and Benny Safdie a question about how they've taken someone here who seems so repugnant, who seems so awful to the people in his lives and just seems like the kind of guy you would want to avoid at all costs. Really, I think I framed it not just unlikable, but someone who's kind of irredeemable and They instantly, but very nicely, jumped in and interrupted me and said, that's not how we see him at all. Of course, I'm sure they acknowledge some of the same things we all see when we watch him and that he's a person who would make your life very difficult if you were a friend or family member, but they also see a sort of crazy genius in him, something about him that's inspired, something about him that I think they would even say is a little bit sympathetic, even though he just seems to cause so much pain for other people. And as I was trying to get a handle on Simon Rex's character here and his performance too, I was thinking about that conversation with the Safties in my head and going, I want to instantly judge this character a certain way. And the movie is so resistant of doing that, even as it doesn't shy away from showing how manipulative and how exploitative and how selfish he is. I think the performance is a big part of it too, but there's just something about Baker as a filmmaker that, makes his characters and his movies resistant to that type of judgment or at least want to challenge you on that level and say, "Okay, I know that's your instant reaction to him, but what about what about this? It's at least going to leave you really reckoning with the the people who maybe you are very easy to write off if you encounter them at
1: all. Yeah. I thought of Uncut Gems too. I think the experience of watching Uncut Gems was a little more harrowing and yeah, very different. And I think, you know, the characters are distinct in that Sandler, you could appreciate those things you talked about, you know, the the crazy genius or whatever you want to describe it, the brazenness, but not necessarily find it charming. Whereas Mikey is charming. I mean, he is, there is no way around it. And this movie, for me, is all about Simon Rex's performance. I mean, mm-hmm. what uh, what a stroke of ingenuity to cast him. I knew nothing about him except, like, vaguely that I'd read his name or heard his name years before. And it would pop up every once in a while on Twitter for something. And I never wanted to find out more about him. I wanted to go into this movie just not knowing anything and figuring that out later, and I'm so glad I did because this is such a fully conceived character that he's probably going to end up among my favorite performances of the year. To be honest oh, with yeah. you, it's I just love to hear that. an unequivocally great comic performance and i won't say rex's background so that listeners who don't know about it can have the same experience i did but it it applies a little bit to what we get here but at <laughs> yeah. the same time there's
0: an authenticity
1: there's an authenticity but i don't think that's necessarily what is making this a great performance i mean no. let's just start with the way the guy looks he looks like he's bradley cooper if he'd been trapped in a tanning machine for forty-eight hours, and mm-hmm. that is so perfect for this character, I love that we never hear why he has showed up back in this town, getting no. off a bus and has to walk all the way to this house. We we yeah. just he's he's destitute because of some. Once we spend yeah. five minutes with him, we know it doesn't yeah. matter. We know why so, he's beat up. Of course, we don't know what the circumstances co- are, but we get it. Of course, this is going to happen to him. Yeah. But here's the key: he's sweet and icky at the same time. And Mikey has a light, I'm going to say he even has a gentle spirit that is completely at odds with the materialist manner with which he Mm -hmm. thinks about and engages in sex. And that is the tension, that is the push and pull here, how, how this is a guy who can connect with people in a very human, sweet, affable way, but when it comes to sexuality itself divorces it it becomes functional it becomes opportunistic it becomes animalistic for him and there's a gap there that is really that Mikey can never bridge that is at the the root of the sadness of of his character but what does rex have to do he has to give us that sadness and he also has to give us the charming element and the maybe my favorite moment is such a throwaway but i think it captures everything about this guy so he's living he's convinced his former lover lexi played by brie elrod she lives with her mother played by brenda deese or brenda dice not sure which to let him live with them he's gonna have to pay rent right (laughs) nominal rent if he can scrounge it up and this is maybe midway through the film they've come to terms with this arrangement and he has this, a new ashtray. I forget where he got it, but... He, he got it at the garage sale next door. Uh, Remember? Awesome. they
0: They throw it in with the men's clothes that he buys. So perfect.
1: Yes. So he takes it back to this house. It's nice and clean. And he gives it to them. This beautiful gesture, right? But what does he do? He grabs their old ashtray. And instead of like just throwing the used cigarettes from the old one in the garbage... He dumps them into the new tray. Into the new one. On yeah. their table, as if it's part of the <laughs> gift. And he's completely clueless to this, right? Yeah. He has no idea of, of a really how good like, insulting that was. He's, just, he's oblivious to his own lostness in ways big and small. And Rex allows a glimmer of self-awareness to, to kind of flicker into the performance until that final close-up. Is going to go down. We could do a top five list some point, mm. Adam, of like last shot close-ups. I think the one held on George Clooney and Michael Clayton comes to mind for me a lot. Sure. It's a little more extended than this one. But what Rex does in this close-up, I think any actor, no matter what your background is, should be envious of that he pulls that off. And Baker gets us there. Now... I will just say, if if this falls a little short of something like The Florida Project or Tangerine for me, it's probably because Simon Rex kind of overwhelms the movie in ways that I appreciated, but it also makes this a different experience than the sort of communal portrait that we get in those films that is maybe a little more holistic. This is much more, I feel, like a character study, which, again, doesn't make it necessarily the lesser film, just a different experience for me than those other two.
0: That ending is something we won't be able to reckon with here. And I don't know yet what my take on it is. I'm certainly not disagreeing with your take on Simon Rex's performance in it, but it's an ambiguous, sort of mysterious open-ended one in the same vein as the Florida Project. But yes. that's also one that I didn't find that ambiguous that actually really spoke to me and I thought was fairly clear. And I I, I think clear maybe more in the sense that it seemed like the ending that film required and it, it hit... Something within me emotionally, and this one keeps you a little bit more at a distance that I'm still trying to to kind of think about how I feel about it, but I love that ashtray observation Josh also because it's kind of a nice metaphor for the entire movie if you think about all of the grossness all the awfulness mm. that is really at the core of this film at the character's behavior at the the need that materialist Sort of need and impulse they have to exploit. It, it's like those cigarettes, and and the answer is never to actually solve the problem, mm-hmm. to get rid of to get rid of the awfulness. It's we'll just put a nice shine on it. We'll <laughs> just get a nicer looking ashtray, but the awfulness is still going to sit there. I like right. It. Yep. And and maybe maybe we'll just be able to all tolerate it a bit more or pretend it's not there because from yeah, across the room it. we can we can look at it and we can go, doesn't that look like a nice ashtray? Yeah. This is all about looks. It's all about the appearances. His looks really do matter here. You touched on this, right? He is someone, and actually it goes back to our discussion a little bit of West Side Story, where whether you thought Elgort's Tony was dangerous or not, he was a guy who positioned himself, portrayed himself as someone who had seen all this terribleness and who was really capable of a lot of bad things, but was so sweet, naive, and innocent at his core. And here you've got someone who is really grimy, and terrible at his core, but on the outside is all, you know, puppies and lollipops, polite smiles and, and just so courteous. And, and that, that appearance of being someone who you could see standing out in this small Texas town. Sure. Always having, always having that little bit of a glow around him. Like the, the character Lonnie next door who says, Oh, you guys were like rock stars. Yeah. Well in that town, he probably was, Just because of how he looked and his ability to come in.
1: You never doubt that he made whatever progress he did in Hollywood in whatever industry. Like you totally, you
0: totally can see him making it that far. And then you can also totally see him screwing it up royally. Yeah, for sure. And I think, too, this is where the other film I was thinking about comes into play. Baker. And I wonder how you felt about it, Josh. But the movie I'm going to compare it to, you did kind of love it when this filmmaker did it. So I wonder if it paid off the backdrop of this film is not by accident set against the Trump election in 2016. It appears in a few different scenes throughout the movie and the movie it made me think of is of course shampoo. And I think there's a lot of Warren Beatty's character Hmm. in Mikey as well, certainly in the way he uses women and that's set against the backdrop of the election of Richard Nixon. And You have a character in Mikey who, if you're going to sympathize with it all or empathize with or just not despise and judge terribly, I think you're going to see in him a character who is a product in some ways of his environment. His environment not just being this Texas town, but America, the materialist manner, I think, is the way you put it. Everybody is out for themselves in this film. Everybody is just trying to get by. And if they have to hustle, then They are going to do it, and they all do have to hustle. They are not going to survive if every time they see an opportunity, they don't take advantage of that opportunity, even if it means exploiting someone else. And well, guess what? The backdrop of this here is a figure who's more, I'll say it, more morally and ethically bankrupt than Mikey Saber, and he's getting elected to the highest office in the land.
1: Yeah, I think for me, I did notice that, and it, it was I was kind of trying to put it together, and also putting together which I don't remember offhand when Red Rocket was made initially meant to be released. You know what? What was the timing? Because because we're obviously we're seeing this post Trump. You know, he's
0: definitely setting it back in sixteen, though.
1: Yeah, yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah, that's the setting. I just mean like what the implications were in a world sure. that maybe a year later. And for me, I think it it tied in a little bit to the obliviousness. Is that these are all characters who, as we all are, you know, we only really see what's in front of us. And in their instances, they are, most of them are have more desperate situations in front of them. Mikey, more than anyone, right? And so it was kind of this, having this in the backdrop is like, look up. If you would just look up and see what is happening that is, is a bigger thing than maybe this initial problem you're facing is kind of how it registered to me. It's just a more of an echo of Mikey in particular, the obliviousness that he would, you got a feeling like if you asked him who was president, he wouldn't know. No. (laughs) And it's, you know, not that that's like a litmus test for intelligence or anything like that. It's just like the the narrow blinders this guy was living in. And that comes to the people in his life, too, because as much as we've kind of joked and laughed about him and as polite as he seems to be to the people in his life he's really cruel to them. He's Mm -hmm. not, he's not cruel in their face, but he's exploitative. He's a user. This guy is a user at the end of the day. And I think the movie is about the levels of, that brings us back to shampoo, I think, right? Uh, The levels of recognition that he reaches. And that's what I like about the ending is, is like that, that's where it's, it's sort of, how are we going to interpret that expression? Is there self-awareness there or is there, triumph in those eyes Uh, that's kind of like the crucial question for me
0: yeah i think that is the crucial question and i think mileage may vary there in terms of it will everybody watching it i think will maybe come up with a slightly different answer josh but i think you've nailed what is the fundamental provocation of the ending of red rocket which we otherwise of course will not spoil. Red Rocket opens in limited release on December 10th. Like West Side Story, this one is another good one from Sean Baker. And that is our show.
1: If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know, what is your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter.
0: Out in limited release, the new one from Paul Verhoeven, Benedetta. Also, Flea. This is an acclaimed animated documentary about an Afghan refugee who came to Denmark as a child at 36. He has a secret that threatens to ruin the life he's built for himself. Eric Cohen over at IndieWire said there have been countless movies about the immigration crisis, but none of them have the sheer ingenuity of Flea. In wide release, you can see Wolf. This is 1917's George Mackay, who believes he is a wolf trapped in a human body out on digital is listening to Kenny G. This is a new documentary from Penny Lane who made hail Satan. That's on HBO max. And yes, the power of the dog comes to Netflix. That is the latest from Jane Campion. And it is the movie that will be our finale to our Jane Campion overview. We will then tag that with, we are the campions, our awards, our picks for our best moment. Our favorite lead performance, our favorite supporting performance, man, favorite lead performance is a tough one. And best picture, could the power of the dog actually unseat Josh's beloved piano as his favorite campion picture that in the business is called the tease even if not a very good one Josh
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe so and Sam Van Halgren without Sam and Golden Joe this show wouldn't go our production assistant is Kat Sullivan thanks also to Candice Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago more information is available at WBEZ.org for Film Spotting
0: I'm Josh Larson and I'm Adam Kempinar thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting Family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.